green earth. This is not now, not at this moment at least, a uh, Republican-Democrat fight. It is not a liberal-conservative fight. This is uh, basically a fight between people who you could call ameliorists, who just want to make things better, not perfect, just better. And uh, that's the case, really, for red flag laws. Uh, would they take away anyone's uh, Second Amendment rights? Is that a constitutional issue? Is there a conservative, a constitutional conservative case for red flag laws? Somebody who advanced that uh, sort of case, they, it was just advanced in the National Review. They have gone with this. Uh, the Spectator has a case for a federal red flag laws. Uh, best case of all made by David French, who is senior editor of The Dispatch. He's a great friend of this show. He's also a writer for The Atlantic and co-host of Advisory Opinions and the Good Faith podcast. He is an Iraq vet and a, a veteran uh, conservative religious liberty uh, public interest attorney. Uh, David, congratulations on a number of your pieces, which I want to try to get to all of them here in this show. Uh, first of all, do you have any concerns about the way that red flag laws could be written to be too restrictive of uh, law-abiding citizens? Oh, certainly. There, there are ways in which a red flag law could be constructed to um, provide, I think the primary concern would be to provide insufficient amounts of due process before um, guns are seized or either uh, after guns are seized. In other words, many red flag laws properly provide for what's called an ex parte order, which is where you can go in and get an order before there's an opportunity for a hearing, something that's very appropriate in emergency circumstances. It's used, for example, in domestic violence situations to get restraining orders in domestic violence. Uh, uh, cases, but you should be able to challenge that very quickly after a seizure order. So there's concerns there that, uh, you know, any good idea can become a bad idea. The execution uh, is a pretty good rule of thumb for any legislation. But as a general matter, when you're talking about red flag laws, these laws that allow uh, the a judge to issue an order requiring seizure of guns when somebody has demonstrated that they're a threat to themselves or others, as a general matter, what you're talking about is exactly the kind of gun restriction that the overwhelming majority of Americans understand is necessary, and that's a restriction related to the behavior of individuals. In other words, the idea that their irresponsible behavior or their dangerous behavior can disqualify them from gun ownership, at least for a time. Does it make sense if we do have some kind of federal red flag law, and by the way, it increasingly looks like we will because there are all kinds of people, John Cornyn of Texas and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, there are all kinds of mainstream Republicans who are at least talking about this now. If they're right. talking about it, would it make sense to uh, put in place or to operate those red flag laws with a special focus on people who are underage. In other words, uh, someone who uh, who is 18, like the killers were in Buffalo and in Uvalde. 
I don't think there's a need for, uh, I don't think there's a, a necessity of a particular age focus because there was a 50 year and National Institute for Justice funded study of 50 years of mass shootings in the US. And how sad is it that we now have 50 years of mass shootings to study? And it found that a majority of mass shootings, the shooters, regardless of their age and regardless of whether or not it was a school shooter, a school shooting, they um, they leaked their intentions. In other words, they made they made their intention to engage in violence clear. And so you're talking about a majority of all mass shootings. When you drill down to school shootings, uh, Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona, he had a, a commission. He had a, a part of his team looked at school shootings, the deadliest school shootings in the U.S. And as of 2018. They found that every single one of the deadliest school shootings was preceded by the kinds of warning warning behavior that red that would apply to red flag laws. So, the way in which red flag laws deal with the actual problem, what the evidence shows is the actual problem, is it's pretty compelling. Um, now, of course, you'd have to have them sufficiently funded and the public sufficiently aware of their existence to be able to work, because if people don't know the law exists, they can't use it. But there's real potential here. And, and add to that bipartisan coalition you talked about, just as recently as last year, before the Uvalde shooting, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott co-sponsored federal red flag legislation uh, in that would have pr- provided DOJ grants for states that enacted red flag laws. Okay, you bring up um, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, um, and this was, of course, after the Parkland shooting, I assume. They well, they Marco Rubio suggested federal legislation after Parkland, and then again in 2021, three years after Parkland. So there, there's draft legislation that dates back to, I mean, not even a year. So this has been an issue, an idea that's been viable and alive in the conversation for some time now. That's been given. You know, new momentum by the terrible, the terrible uh, attack in Uvalde. Let me get to another column you wrote. I this is uh, David. You and I haven't spoken about this personally, but I love this column and I think it's tremendously important. It's under the. It's about civility. It's under a headline that says a commitment to kindness does not mean surrendering your convictions. And just to read uh, part of what you say here. You, you write that time and again I read about how bad things are now, how vile the left has become, and how a commitment to winsomeness or kindness is simply inadequate to the moment. Even worse, it's sometimes seen as evidence of weakness or fear, as an effort to curry favor with people who hate you. Uh, why is kindness basically seen so often today as a uh, uh, an ineffective strategy, as as something that uh, that that can't work. I, I'll give you one one word: uh, animosity. <laughs> and I I I think the evidence that kindness doesn't work is lacking. Um, if you're going to talk, say, for example, to a trial lawyer who's trying to persuade a jury of the rightness of their cause, you're going to go to a trial lawyer and say, you know, what you what you really should do is be mean to the jury. <laughs> <laughs> they, would, they would think you'd lost your mind. But what we have now is a is a political environment in which persuasion is seen as less important than mobilization. And so how are you going to mobilize people 
to join your side. And it's often by alarmist tactics. It's often by sort of being seen as being a warrior. And so in that circumstance, um, kindness is viewed as an impediment because if you're cultivating animosity for your opponent, kindness undermines animosity. Uh, and so in our, in our modern system right now, in our modern cultural reality right now, where the two sides hate each other so much, one of the surest ways to get applause from your own team is quite simply by cruelty or anim- expressing cruelty or, or fury at the other side. Now, it's not a way to persuade people. It's not a way to get people on the fence to join with you. But it is a very good way to get applause on cable news hits or on Twitter. Uh, more coming up with uh, David French. What does this mean, both the issue of guns and public safety and crime and the issue of uh, kindness and graciousness and civility and public discourse of the future? We'll get to that with David French coming up on The Medved Show. Michael Medved. I'm listening to everything you say. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show speaking uh, with David French. He uh, is the uh, senior editor at the Dispatch, and he is also a contributing writer for Atlantic, a co-host of Advisory Opinions, and a, a veteran religious liberties lawyer who's worked for many years with the Alliance Defending Freedom, and uh, is also an advocate for doing what you can. Uh, to make things better in a country that is just seems to be increasingly torn apart and brought to extremes. Uh, so when people say that uh, they want candidates who will fight, uh, the candidates who aren't, and, and you always hear the same words, uh, people who are wishy-washy, who are namby-pamby, who want to play by the Marcus at Creamsbury rules, um, what do you say to people who say, David, politics is a dirty business. You're writing about kindness and civility. That's uh, for losers and rhinos. <laughs> well, you know, one, one of the things that I'll say is, look, I, I'm no stranger to legal conflict. Uh, I was a litigator for 21 years before I became a journalist. Um, engaged in some of these cultural war fights on college campuses from across the length and breadth of the United States. And, you know, while I'm never going to say that I was perfect in the way that I conducted myself, I always strove to uh, try to to conduct myself with civility and decency, but also firmness and conviction. Those two things are not inconsistent with each other. And I'd stack our legal team's record up against anybody's in the country um, we had a phenomenal amount of success over the years. In fact, you know, you can look at a record of rolling back speech codes, um, bringing stu- religious student groups back onto campuses, granting funding to religious student groups, 
winning jury trials for professors. I mean, you the record is there. The record is there. And it's hardly the case that, you know, the only politicians to ever win are have been the politicians who walked into the public square with a sort of brutalist attitude. That's just simply not the case. There's an awful lot of overreading that has gone into the Trump victory in 2016. Um, they've taken his his contest against a uniquely vulnerable Democrat, the the most disliked politician in America, other than Trump himself. And overread into that, that that is the path forward. It also happens to be quite satisfying in the way people engage with each other on Twitter. But Twitter is not the real world. That is not the place where people make the key decisions that that uh, will decide the future of our country. And so, the record for civility and decency is pretty darn good, even now. Okay, and and uh, maybe how do how do you continue that in light of these two utterly polarizing issues? And one of them is the issue of abortion and uh, the apparent uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court of the United States. We're going to be going through a lot of fights on the statewide level, aren't we, about yes. just how much people are going to regulate. Uh, abortion isn't isn't that a, I, we were talking during the break about something that you made me aware of and I won't even mention the name but there's a, a pastor who has a TV ministry who basically has um, just thrown the Democrats out of his church he said the Democrats right. are, are are baby butchering demons right. and <laughs> if you're gonna throw Democrats out of your church is that a way to build either a church or a political movement well sadly for him it's been a way to build a church um but i i think what you know a lot of people who focus on american political partisanship and how extreme the two polar opposite partisan sides have become is they're missing what's called the exhausted majority this is a I, a cohort of Americans, two-thirds or so of Americans, identified by a group called More in Common that's been researching American polarization. And this exhausted majority are Americans right, left, and center who, quite frankly, are sick of all of the animosity. They are sick of the failure to compromise. And they are an overwhelming majority of Americans. And so one of the problems that we have in this country, though, is that the operative word in that phrase exhausted majority is exhausted and not majority <laughs> they they're kind of kind of hanging back but there's a lot of room for leadership to um, really inspire that exhausted majority to, majority to assert itself and that's i think where our our capacity for compromise um, our capacity to to maybe actually get a few things done, it lies with that exhausted majority, not with this hyperpolarized wings. And what you, the point you make in your piece, which we will post on our website, the piece is called "The Commitment to Kindness Does Not Mean Surrendering Your Convictions," is that being exhausted doesn't mean you have no convictions. It doesn't mean you're right. abandoning uh, your knowledge of right and wrong. Right. Right. You know, what's happened is a lot of people have been sh sort of shocked out of, you know, they faced, I, I call it like a cattle prod culture. They try to engage politically 
even if you know they're a private citizen, they don't have a public platform, they just engage on Facebook and are immediately hit with a hurricane of hatred and, and vitriol. And for right now, a lot of those people have decided to retreat from the online space, but that doesn't mean that they've retreated from uh, engagement in American civic culture. So there's all kinds of places in which people are engaged uh, in American civic culture, churches, you know, uh, civic associations, and they're not doing it on Facebook. And and it's interesting. Every now and then you you'll see this in the in the results of interesting elections. Think of the San Francisco recall of the San Francisco School Board, which, you know, if you're going by Twitter energy, you would think that the far far left had all the momentum in San Francisco until they got just crushed at the polls. Or if you're going by Twitter energy, you would think that the far, far left had all the momentum in New York City before the most moderate of the Democrats, Eric Adams, won an election. Um, if you're going by Twitter energy, you would have thought that Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia, who directly confronted Trump, had no chance at all. And he trounced his opponent by 20 points or so. So there's a lot going on that's not happening online, but it's evidence that there are some Americans who are getting a little bit tired of the current hyperpartisanship. Well, as the term exhausted majority indicates, I, I know you have to go. Uh, quick guess. Do you think it will be Trump versus Biden again? Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, but that's more of a hope than a prediction. <laughs> <laughs> well, let us hope that your hope comes clear and that uh, we do not have what I've been referring to as the Groundhog Day election, where you feel like you just can't escape. I mean, really, wouldn't that, that, that actually make for an exhausted majority? Uh, David French, read his columns about red flag laws. And a, a, a wonderful new column, To Do the Right Thing, You Might Have to Die, about the police and Uvalde and more. Uh, we will be right back on The Medved Show. Godspeed, David French. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show uh, talking uh, about the ongoing the ongoing tide it seems that uh, more and more prominent Republicans and conservatives Joe Manchin is affiliated with this group now with uh, together with Pat Toomey the outgoing senator from Pennsylvania and uh, again to uh, they seem to be focused on two potential pushes on the issue of gun regulation. None of them have to do with confiscating firearms. They, um, uh, well, basically they have to do with red flag laws. We have a, a challenge on red flag laws. Uh, Tim Eve, Tim uh, from uh, Polsbo, uh, Washington says, respectfully, your and David French's position regarding red flags neglect some simple facts with respect to Uvalde. I've listened to the grandfather. I've listened to the mother. 
which of these two do you think was going to raise a, a red flag if such a law existed in Texas? And the answer is uh, probably the grandmother, who seems to have been the the dominant figure in that family. She owned the home in which both the mother was living and in which she was living with her grandson, and she was the one he uh, he shot in the face. And uh, the the answer also would be, uh, it, it, we don't know yet, but it is probable that there were teachers, not in the elementary school, but in the high school that he had been sporadically attending, who would have noticed things like um, the knife cuts he had put on his own face and uh, a pattern of behavior uh, like we saw. And to, to use red flag laws for social media posts that that clearly indicate uh, that someone is on uh, on the verge of uh, some kind of psychiatric emergency uh, that that seems to be appropriate the other thing that we're talking about is had there been a as there is in many states a, a restriction of getting uh, uh, long guns and the kind of uh, semi-automatic weapons that that he uh, used in his attack on the school, that uh, it would have been impossible for him to get those two guns in uh, th within three days of his 18th birthday, which is what happened. And one of the things, and I, again, I, we were talking over the weekend with uh, one of our friends who's a Marine Corps veteran and a firearms instructor and the owner of... Uh, I mean, he collects weapons. But one of the things he said is, he said, if you actually look at the guns that he bought, they're like $1,000 each. Now, where does a guy who apparently was working very part-time at Wendy and was going, again, to high school sporadically, and there were people at the Wendy's restaurant who worked alongside him, who also saw that he was troubled. And in a right thinking country to be aware particularly of young men because that is the danger area who are showing things that make an impression on you like uh, like the cuts that he had placed on his face and then when he was asked about it by his friend he said it was fun uh, that's probably not the kind of person who should be uh, purchasing firearms on his 18th birthday this came in from John in California. He said, uh, I agree that red flag laws could be an improvement in the situation we are in. I don't think the problem roadblock is a lack of kindness. No, no, I, you're, we're talking about two different subjects there. He says, I think the gun rights side doesn't trust the left with any opening. When you look at the abuse of something like the Interstate Commerce Clause, it is hard to believe uh, those who point to places like Australia, Canada, and Britain as an example when they say they aren't trying to take away everyone's guns. Uh, Canada, Canada has fairly extensive gun ownership. Uh, they do. They're one of the countries in the world with the highest levels of gun ownership. Now, 
that would not be the case if the uh, laws that that Prime Minister Trudeau has introduced actually are passed and to put into place. The, The only idea where kindness, if you want, comes in, civility, would be when you say you don't trust the left with any opening, what is it you think that the left really wants to do? What's what's the uh, what's the the motivation there? Do what uh, do are they planning basically to subjugate everyone in a, in America, and that's why they have to disarm people? Is it a conspiratorial thing? But when you say you don't trust the left with any opening, uh, not even to go through the kind of common sense. Uh, reforms, not radical reforms or revolutions, but just tightening things up to so they make a little bit more sense. Uh, how, in what sense, does that constitute an opening? One eight hundred nine five five seventeen seventy six. David in Shoreline, Washington. You're on the Medved Show. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, I sure. just wanted to make a short, quick comment about uh, AR fifteen. Uh, but I guess first I just thought of another uh, situation that uh, just pretty near me here in Marysville, Washington, there was a, a deputy sheriff that had a gun on his console of his car uh, when he ran into the convenience store as a gas station, and he had his two little kids in the car, and the gun was loaded, and his three-year-old took the gun and killed his five-year-old daughter. Oh, I remember that. What a terrible yeah, story. Yeah, and, and I think there is a certain segment in American in America that sort of accepts that risk. They somehow think that, I mean, that it's really rare that that happens, first of all, but there are people, because I grew up around a lot of guns, and there were people where I grew up that, that would keep a loaded gun behind the door in their house, and they just assumed, uh, you know, maybe somebody will get shot, but, you know, that's my gun, and I need to accept this risk. But my, well, my real comment was that my uh, about AR-15s that my nephew owns an AR-15. He's also an avid hunter. He hunts uh, deer and elk, but he would never take his assault weapon out to hunt because he would say it ruins too much of the meat in the in the animal when you shoot it. And I was just thinking about uh, I, I heard a segment where one of the pediatric surgeons worked on some of the kids from Uvalde. He, he had worked on you know taking care of these kids for ten years and. He said he hardly recognized them when they came to the hospital. Oh, this is a, I think we th- just there's an awful start. there's an awful story about one of the fathers from uh, Sandy Hook who had thought about releasing the uh, post mortem the photos of his little six year old uh, just so people could see what exactly that kind of gun did to a small child, and he decided not to do it, even though he thought it would persuade a lot of people. And then now people are talking about this, is that if the American people actually saw the photos of these 10-year-old girls and 10-year-old little boys and what was left of them, because, again, you're you're talking with an AR-15, chances are you're not just hit once by a single shot. Am I right? Uh, David, I appreciate your call.
and uh, thank you for it. We will be right back with the latest on the bipartisan coalition. We'll get to that. No, 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 no. Join in your daily dose of debate. Seems like a sensible thing to do. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. And I hope that everybody had a um, meaningful patriotic uh, and grateful Memorial Day. Uh, the, uh, the Often there's confusion between Veterans Day, which grew out of Armistice Day. Memorial Day grew out of what used to be called Decoration Day, uh, which was a, uh, originally to honor the people who had given their lives to save the Union and to free four million slaves. Uh, which was over 300,000 people who made the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, there was uh, no sacrifice made to glorify some aspects of our national service. The difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day, Memorial Day is for those who have fallen. Veterans Day is generally supposed to be for those who have survived. And, uh, okay, Memorial Day saw a, a wonderful advertisement for the U.S. military, particularly the Navy, particularly naval aviators, Top Gun Maverick, uh, $156 million domestic, over $300 million worldwide. And by the way, that's one of the things that makes me happy. In other words, if all of a sudden this, this movie is doing more than $150 million in, uh, in box office around the world, outside the United States, it's a terrific advertisement for the U.S. and for our military. The uh, uh, comments on the phenomenal success at, uh, at, at this, with the, it, by the way, the biggest Memorial Day weekend uh, box office opening ever of beating Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. But speaking of it, Pirates of the Caribbean, when does that trial end? We're still waiting for the <clears throat> the verdict on, uh, aren't we, on Amber Heard and, uh, and Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow. Uh, okay, this is a comment by the CEO for IMAX, and if I happen to be able to see a Top Gun on IMAX, and and look, the the aerial combat scenes were just spectacular. Here's what the CEO of IMAX had to say: The movie business is up back. Um, what this film, though, will expand the demographic. So the movie business has been back for kind of younger people who feel more invincible. And I've put up the numbers. What's unique about this is how broad the audience is going to be. And again, you look at the pre-sales, you look at the walk-up. I mean, it's it's demonstrable. And the, the kind of thing that someone in the movie business never says is don't talk uh, lower expectations. When people get back and they see this movie, it's going to remind them that they want to go to the movies. 
Okay, and uh, I think it has done that. I mean, what a uh, triumph. Uh, The U.S. Navy, uh, the report is, uh, loaned the filmmakers of Top Gun Maverick uh, F.A. 18 Super Hornets with two big catches. Uh, First of all, the star Tom Cruise couldn't touch the cockpit controls as much as he wanted to because they were really flying those planes. And they also charged $11,374 an hour to uh, rent the high-tech fighter jets. Uh, Navy got a good deal because for recruiting and for just international prestige, this will only help. A cruise who was famous for performing his own stunts, the report is, insisted that all the actors portraying pilots in the blockbuster uh, fly in one of the fighter jets so they could understand what it feels like to be a pilot operating under the nausea-inducing strain of intense gravitational forces. And you can do that just uh, um, very easily and directly by going to the theater. Now, don't think that everything is right with the movie business because they've just announced that they are releasing uh, and they're wrapped actually, so they completed, they're going to be releasing uh, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, which uh, the first stills show that Winnie is a demonic Pooh. Uh, You can see him now in clips. Uh, He's licking uh, a knife, and he's about to pounce on a scantily clad young woman relaxing in a hot tub. Variety reported last week, noting the beloved A.A. Milne character's lapsed into the public domain five months ago. And uh, she, uh, the girl in the hot tub is having a good time, and then Pooh and Piglet appear behind her, chloroform her, take her out of the jacuzzi, and then kind of drive a car over her head. Uh, the film, the new film, Pooh, Blood and Honey, which no one should see, I hope, but it sounds like this. Christopher Robin away from me, just like I take the honey from the bees. Now I'm on a killing spree, taking Piglet on the road with me. We'll slay them all till no one remains, cause Winnie the Pooh's in public domain. I'm violent now, but still the same. Silly old bear, just insane. Okay, um, for People with a a real love for Winnie the Pooh, which is most normal human beings, uh, this is sad. And uh, and I I by by the way, maybe if, if red flag law would it be a red flag if somebody goes out and takes someone out to see Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Uh, yeah, and and the basic appeal of movies and theaters is it still remains, even with the very high cost of movie tickets now, it still remains one of the cheapest dates around. I mean, concerts are more expensive. Restaurants are certainly more expensive. Uh, just being at bars, if you're going to consume anything. So, uh, but Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey for date night, I, I would think not. Uh, there's also this, which is somewhat encouraging and shocking, A Daily Beast is reporting that uh, two high-ranking Russian officers 
have been caught blasting Moscow's failures in Ukraine and railing against military leadership, according to a new report. Two high-ranking Russian military officers have been uh, caught S-talking Kremlin leadership in unimaginably colorful language, says Daily Beast. The two colonels blast the defense minister and lash out at that mother beep of Vladimir Putin for his poor strategy in Ukraine, according to a leaked recording of a phone conversation. I, I hope th those guys whose voices might be recognizable in the phone conversation or might even be identified are uh, well removed from uh, any consequences. Uh, the uh, We're going to be speaking coming up to Wilfred Riley. And uh, basically, he has a response, and it's an academic analysis and a full report to the charge by Black Lives Matter that uh, police in America are, by definition, a white supremacist institution. They, in fact, uh, put up a... Um, a tweet from Black Lives Matter saying uh, maintaining a white supremacist institution like policing costs black lives. This continued commitment by politicians to support our killers makes them accessories to our demise. As one of the more prominent black scholars in the country, uh, Professor Riley certainly will have something to say about that. He's the author of the books Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, and Hate Crimes Hoax. Uh, we'll be speaking to him, for, uh, giving you the very latest on the war in Ukraine, and uh, also talking about Joe Biden, columnist. He has a column about the U.S. economy and where he means to... Uh, to run it from here, and <laughs> no one hopes not further into the ground. Uh, though what is good about the economy? Is there anything? We will deal with that, and also with a church uh, being broken into and desecrated in what certainly seems like a hate crime, but it also involves stealing a $2 million religious artifact from a Catholic church in Brooklyn. We will get to that and to much more, all coming up uh, during a um, maybe a uh, spring season of new life and new hope in this greatest nation on God's green earth.